Next Chapter Podcasts. I'm Michael Goodfriend. As head of scripted fiction at Next Chapter Podcasts, I'm always looking for a good story. And I found one in an old friend of mine who I met when I was a kid in Wisconsin 35 years ago. I used to know him as Jerry. Now he's Lama Tukten Rinpoche. Every Friday morning for 10 weeks in a row, I tried to learn how that happened. These are my mornings with Rinpoche. If you have a question or comment you'd like to share, my email address is michael at ncpodcasts.com. When I first met you, your name was Jerry Gardner. What do I call you now? I have so many titles sometimes, I just tell people, pick one. One of the titles is I'm a professor at the University of Utah in the theater department, where I teach predominantly physical movement, uh, Zen meditation, and Puto dance theater, and other various subjects that have uh, both Western and Asian based to them. But they are probably all rooted in my Buddhist uh, practice. And so I've spent uh, years being in India, and China, and in Nepal, and Bhutan. And through the grace of my teachers, I have been given, first I received the title of Lama, uh, and then I was recognized uh, through a series of events 
uh, given the title of Rinpoche. And Lama, this word Lama means the one who sits on the seat. So I am presently sitting on my seat um, in that respect. So in the title Rinpoche means ocean of wisdom, which I have to laugh. <laughs> ocean of wisdom. <laughs> I am prone to make jokes about my own absurd existence. <laughs> but anyway, I'm nothing but a servant. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, as in all spiritual traditions, perhaps, is to look upon oneself as a servant to sentient beings, a servant to human beings. But also, it means nothing more to me than every day be a good human being. How? by radiating, by exuding loving kindness and compassion and joyousness and equanimity. So even I think about how I have arrived at what I do and still it's a process of a discovery. So the title now, you can just say Rinpoche. Most people call me Rinpoche. Some people call me Sifu. I try to bring together both the Buddhist way and the Taoist way, which are really interlinked. If one was to address me and I am dressed like this, and then they would say Rinpoche. Uh, if I'm dressed in more was Wudong, Wudong is the Taoist tra uh, uh, tradition, then they probably would say uh, Sifu. And, uh, but otherwise, it's just Jerry. <laughs> and sometimes, uh, we lose sight of our true nature, who we really are. You know, it's the old Shakespearean uh, phrase, a rose by him and other names, still it's just as sweet. It is still a rose. So maybe I would say to all of those who are listening is discover your rose, which means discover your flower. And every flower has a, uh, a scent, a color, a shape, and it's balanced, isn't it, with nature? It has its true nature. So we use, like in the Wudang tradition, we speak of the secret of golden flower. Where is this flower in our heart? And we can see during these very challenging times, Michael, that our heart is becoming like stone. It seems to be beating but at the core, it's dead. And I was talking to another student the other night. We would rather to engage in the falsity of living as opposed to opening our hearts and loving. So this title, which you want to call me, doesn't matter. We are all Rinpoche. We are all Lama. We are all Flower. We don't recognize it, and we're dying as a culture, as a society, as a civilization. We are dying. Spiritually, we're dying. We have so many superhero movies, Walking Dead movies, zombie movies, and our art sort of reflect the mentality of our culture, don't you think? Why we're so fascinated with heroes? Why are we so fascinated with zombies? Why are we so fascinated with violence? Constant in 
therefore, we see this automatomic behaviors. We see violence, zombie-like approach to what's happening around us and how we treat each other. The real virus, we say in our tradition, the real virus is ignorance, desire, and anger. These three poisons. Anyway, as I told you when we spoke earlier, is you might ask me a question and uh, so many ideas come into my head. And my tradition, there are several traditions in the, uh, especially in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, or we should say the Vajrayana tradition, because Vajrayana Buddhism, and it's, there's so much history I'd have to go into, because Buddhism, um, is broken into three specific categories, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. But in our tradition that has originated coming uh, and developing uh, distinctly in Tibet is called Vajrayana, the diamond vehicle. And this diamond vehicle incorporates all of the other different various aspects of the Buddhist tradition. In the Tibetan aspect, there are four schools that have maintained. Nyingma tradition, which is the oldest, Kargyupa tradition, then the Sakyabha tradition, and then the Golupa tradition, which we are more known of the Golupa tradition from the great master, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who really is the embodiment of all of these traditions. But in the Nyingma tradition, there's what's called, there's, you might say there's the family tradition, Sakyabha. Maybe there's, I would say, the scholarly uh, tradition, um, which I might say the Golupa, and this is a generalization. And then there's the Kargyupa and the Nyingma. We are what's called a practice lineage. And our focus is based on practice, which brings about direct experience. And through direct experience, then you obtain knowledge. And from that knowledge comes your wisdom. So without a, a systematic uh, an approach that takes us through a lattice of evolution, then we don't really come to understand what is our true nature, going back to the flower. Take us to the beginning of your journey. So I knew you as Jerry Gardner in 1987. You were teaching Pilates at American Players Theater, as I remember, or it was movement. Uh, yes. An array of movement styles. That was 35 years ago. Can you take us from where you began to where we met in in your your journey. I'm going to take you to Selma, Alabama. Um, even though um, I was born in Alabama, and that's a whole other interesting sort of history. But I was trying to reflect back. My earliest memory is being in Bethlehem, New York, as a young boy. And vaguely, I remember brownstones and wrought iron fences. And then the next thing I can remember is being in Selma, Alabama. And in Selma, Alabama, again, it took them a while to figure out that I was nearsighted. I couldn't see. <laughs> I didn't know. I just, it was normal for me. So around the first grade in Selma, Alabama, uh, I began to wear glasses 
And one incident I always, whether it is true or my own fiction, I was in the front yard playing on a summer day. And for some reason, I like to dig these little holes. And you know, maybe as a kid, they don't see them anymore. These little plastic green soldiers. Um, <laughs> so I had these and I would dig these little holes and I would put them, I put the, put some grass down in the hole and then I would sit these little soldiers down in the little holes and then I would put like a roof on top of it. So I found great joy in doing that. But one day I was uh, doing this and I looked, I was always fascinated by the moon and the clouds and how they moved and shapes. And so I can still see it now. I look up into the sky and I saw this group of men. Some were sitting like this and they were dressed in robes and some were, were standing and they were talking to each other. And I just sort of looked at and I thought, what are those guys doing up in the sky? <laughs> and, uh, and then I went inside and I was staying with an extended, some extended family members. My, I think I was staying with my mother's mother. They shipped me around. Um, but anyway, I told them, I just saw these men in the sky. And they thought I was an odd child anyway. And I never thought any more about it, but the image always stayed with me. And as you said, the journey is, many, many years later, I think probably after I met you, because I first went to Nepal in 1988. When I went to a place called Nagigampa, I saw men and women sitting like what I saw in the clouds. When I was a small child, I used to make these drawings of, of a mountain and a little house and the birds and the clouds. And when I got to Nagigampa, wow, it reminded me of my childhood drawings. So I'm not saying I had, it's like uh, most teachers will say, I have nothing special other than my own fantasies. But it was like these images of my childhood I started to see later in, in my life. And then next thing I know, I'm back in New York. I'm in Queens, in Far Rockaway. Uh, don't worry about it. And in Queens, in Far Rockaway, uh, again, I'm in the middle of this, living in the projects, uh, looking out at the That's bay every day, and going through this. And then the next thing I know, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, at Bedford-Stuyvesant, having arrived in the seventh grade now. Granted, a lot of stuff happens in between. I played music for many years, clarinet, saxophone, blah, blah, blah. But the thing that I think was a pivotal point was being in Bethesda-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn and having come from Long Island and not knowing what Brooklyn Bethesda-Stuyvesant was about. I was in the middle of the territory of what was called the Chaplains, one of the gangs. And uh, I don't want to be a gang member. I don't know what that meant. I had no idea. 
playing a, a game one night called Coco Livio One Two Three. Maybe you know this game, Coco Livio One Two Three, and um, you divide up teams and you get the hide, and if you get caught, then they put you in jail, and it's, it's a crazy game. So I thought I would be clever, so I went up onto the roof of where I lived in this brownstone, and I hid in one of these little cubby holes. Unbeknownst to me, it was a setup. Um, they all showed up, this other gang, they showed up and they go, we're gonna throw you off the roof. I looked around quickly, my mind just went into survival mode. I jumped from the roof to a tree, climbed down the tree and over fences and went through an alleyway to another street, came all the way around and went back upstairs into my own and, and hid out there. I was like, safe. But I decided at that moment, I had to do something. And through a series of events, um, I found uh, Master Green, who had just come back from Okinawa. And uh, he had started a group called the Marine Cadets. And the Marine Cadets, was nothing like the Boy Scouts, that's for sure. This was rough. This was like being in one of the temples. And I began to train. Uh, and this was, it had to be, I was 12 years old, I think 12, 14, something like that. And I was introduced to the rigors of jujitsu, karate, um, and meditation. So from the time I was 12, I have been involved in this process to a various degree. I think that moment of seeing the necessity to engage in a foundational approach that would allow me to exist as a human being. This was the time of the Black Panthers. This was the time of, of social and racial unrest, which hasn't changed that much. That's what makes it makes my heart so sad. You had to decide, who are you? Are you this person? Are you that person? I'm your brother. Yes, we are all brothers. We are all sisters. We are all families. But we were divided by the color of our skin, by the neighborhood, how you dress, how you talk, which is still going on to this very day. But it is changing, and that's very rewarding. Anyway, from a young age, I decided I'm just going to be Jerry, a human being who happens to be a male, who happens to be black, who happens to live in a place called Bethesda-Iverson, and so forth and so on. And I think even to this day, my objective is just to be a good human being, to be kind, Another, another moment you asked me about my journey. I think there are pivotal points in our life that we have to make a decision if we are present in the moment to do so. I was at 14th Street and Canarsie in New York. And I had, I had come from, I don't know, from class or something. But um, I was on the platform by myself and there was a group of young men. And you know when you're being checked out and I went, oh no, here comes trouble. Right, so it's again, flight, fight. And just at the right moment, the train comes up and the door opens. And I had the thought, will you live 
as a kind person or will you descend into darkness and violence? And as the doors opened, I looked at them. They were coming toward me. I walked into the train and I said, I will be a kind human being no matter what. And the door closed. And I have been on that train ever since to this very moment. <laughs> so I either may be here, I may not be here, or I have, may have probably been in, uh, I may have escaped with my life, but we wouldn't have all walked away unharmed. It was just the nature of existence. That was episode one of My Mornings with Rinpoche with Lama Tumten Rinpoche and me, Michael Goodfriend. Our sound designer is Tay Blow with additional sound design and composition by John Gasper. Our engineer is Adam Bernard. If you have anything you'd like to share in the way of a question or comment for me or Rinpoche, my email address is michael at ncpodcasts.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com. I'd love to hear from you. And if there's a way to incorporate your messages into upcoming episodes of the series, I'll make sure it happens. And I'll let you know. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really makes a difference, and it helps us know who's listening. Visit our website, ncpodcast.com, to learn more about all our shows. Next Chapter Podcasts.